Good morning, and happy almost Sabbath. It's coming. Do you remember what we spoke about the first morning, about the garden experience and walking with Christ? The main purpose of prayer is communion, relationship. It's not about what we can get, but it's about who we can know. And then yesterday, we spoke about what? The will of God and how we can go about praying the will. This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about praying like David, and I'm going to take an old story and put a little twist on it. How many remember David and Goliath? We're going to talk a little bit about David and Goliath, and, and this is the prerogative of the pastor that he can take and place new applications on old stories. And that's the wonderful thing about the scriptures. It is so multifaceted that each time we read it, we can learn something new. So we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 17. And before we go there, I want to encourage you, if you really want to learn how to pray, read the Psalms. Because there are about 222 prayers in the Bible. Out of those 222 prayers, David prays 73 of them. And you can see here, I just broke down of David's prayers. First Samuel, there's three prayers by David. Second Samuel, four prayers. Chronicles, one prayer. And Psalms, 65 prayers made by David. And so as you go through the Psalms and read the prayers of David, it can teach us a lot. Matter of fact, everything in the scripture teaches us a lot if we have an open heart. So First Samuel 17, 1 through 51 we're not going to read through the whole story, but I'm wanting to see how well your memory is. Can you, can you help me tell the story? We had David, a young man, and what was happening? Okay. There was a war going on against who? Philistines. Matter of fact... Let me just set the picture here. You know, the, the <coughs> Dr. Ingo, he says about these electronic Bibles, that he likes these, and I love my Bible, but the one thing that's wonderful about this is I can actually read it <laughs> because it's lit, and I can make it bigger. Um... So if you give me a second, we will turn to First uh, Samuel 17. And it says here, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together in Shekoth, which belongeth to Judith, and pitched between Shadoth and Zechiah in Ephesadamon. Yes, thank you. 
And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. I'm going to skip here and there because I want to have you see the, the giant that they had to face. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of Philistines named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. Anybody want to take a guess what that was? They, they were actually saying, some commentators say, depending on the span, it was nine and a half feet to ten feet. I want you to look at this screen here. This screen is almost ten feet. So Goliath was about the height of this screen, and almost half the width of it. That is a big giant. The spear that he, he had, let's look at the spear. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of maul. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. 5,000 shekels is 125 pounds. So this almost 10-foot man or 125-pound breastplate, his spear. And then that's the other problem with electronics. It goes off at times. His spear. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spearhead weighed 600 shekels. So the spearhead itself was 15 pounds. And you think the, the spear being like a beam, it was about the width of this pole. That's, that's a pretty big spear to throw. He was a formidable giant, and what we find in the whole story is this Philistine came out and defied the armies of Israel, mocked them, <laughs> and their what? And their dog? And their God. <laughs> and the interesting thing about this story is the life of David and his preparation. What did David do before he came there? He was a shepherd. And you remember that he, it said in the scriptures as he explains to Saul that he killed what? A lion and a bear with a sling in his hands. And, and we're going to look at this because as we look at the application of the whole story of David and Goliath, there are some important prayer principles that I'd like to go through with you. And <clears throat> if you have the scriptures in front of you, the first one I want you to look at is verse 1720. Verse 1720. And the scripture says, And David rose up early in the morning and left his sheep with the keeper, and took and went to Jesse, <coughs> and went as Jesse had commanded him, 
And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. You know, one of the things that we need to realize in the principle of prayer is as we pray and ask God, we need to commit ourselves to be obedient to his word. If we are not obedient to his word, we're unfaithful to him. But God is always faithful to us, even though we're obedient. And we need to understand that if we have an obedient heart, God can work wonderful miracles through us. And we can face many giants today. The next one is to believe that you serve a living God. Go to 26 and 36. I want you to see here David's attitude. And David spake to the man that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth his Philistine and taketh away the reproach of Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of what? The living God. Can you tell me, what does the living God mean to you? That, that he's active, present, now, that he's real, li- reigning on his throne. It is in him that we live and move and have our being. Each of us got up today and was able to get up today and breathe our breath and walk down here because we serve a living God. And we should be rejoicing about that. Every, every moment that God allows us to breathe and to be able to have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, we should rejoice that we serve a living God. And I want you to think about it also, because a lot of churches, they go to their board meetings, and they try to figure out things on their own. And they forget that they serve a living God. And that a lot of times, our churches may have giants in them, giant problems, giant financial problems. And we need to come and say, but we serve a living God, and he will work it out. And so the next principle as we look into our prayer life is to realize that you do serve a living God. He is alive and now, and he is willing to work with us. The next is we fight in our own armor. What happened? So finally, David is brought to Saul, and Saul places all this heavy. Now, it says that Saul was a head and shoulders above most of the men. So Saul himself was a big man. And it says David was a young man, a youth. And can you imagine this? And can you imagine this big armor being placed on this youth? Let's look at verse um, thirty-eight and thirty-nine. Matter of fact, if someone has it, can they read it for me? Nice and loud. He tried to move, and he could not. And he said, I cannot use this because I have not tested it. 
You know, this is the challenge that pastors and individuals in the church have, especially as new members come in. We expect new members to have the armor that we have or have the gift or talent that we have. And God calls each of us to fight in our own armor. What is your talent? What is your gift that God has given you? Because God can make that gift and that talent a mighty weapon for him. And that Satan and all his hosts are no match for the weakest saint as long as we are coupled with him fighting in our own armor. I have to tell you, I so much want to fight in other people's armors. I look at Doug Batchelor and Dwight Nelson and Mark Finley and I go, man, I want to preach like that. And yet God tells me that I have to preach in my own style and in my own armor. Because you know what? When we fight in our own armor and in our own talent or our gifts that God gives us, he supplies the strength. He supplies the ability to bring people to the Lord. And that the the things that we do and the way we witness, we can't witness like I just... How, Lydia, how long has Chris been in the church? Year and a half. I want to tell you a little story about my friend Chris. Chris is an ex-gangbanger. Big guy, about almost two of me. Big tattoos on his arm. Came um, in his past. What brought him to the place is when he was stabbed. And he was almost bleeding out and dying he had an experience with the lord and he asked lord if you get me you know you know those death experiences lord if you get me through this i will give my life to you and he and he got through it and somehow we connected up and we started bible studies and he became baptized now it's like i have to put a harness on him so whoa boy Whoa, (laughs) because Chris is like the most boldest Christian. I he's out witnessing and we're driving. We're at Taco Bell. We go. See, this pastor takes him to the cheap place to eat. (laughs) We, We go to Taco Bell and he's there. And here I'm the pastor and he's going around giving everybody in Taco Bell a glow track. And, and telling him, praise the Lord, how are you doing today? And I'm going, boy, Lord, I hope you make me bold as this guy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, God has given him specific and special armor to fight in. And, and then on Sabbath afternoons, he goes down to where the homeless are and where those who are deemed by society not very desirable and he's out there witnessing to them and sharing the gospel. And um, I give him. Oh, thank you. I wasn't even looking at that. I appreciate you coming up and doing that. He is uh, just a blessing to me. And I'll tell you, I, if you don't think that you're a blessing to your pastor in your church, you need to rethink it because each and every one of us is an instrument in God's hands. 
And as we work together as a body in Christ, we can take the land for Jesus, just like the Israelites did. So we need to fight in our own armor. Expect great things from God. Verse 36. Verse 36, we read, Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defiled the armies of the living God. You see, David hadn't even begun the fight, and he knew that the battle was already won. And when we come before the the challenges in our church and in our lives, we need to expect great things from God. And, you know, it's the same thing as what the Israelites did to their children. Remember the blessing? They would bless their children with great things, that God would take them to those places. Have that in our hearts and minds as we deal with new believers that come in. They may not be as polished as us Adventists who have been in the faith for 30 years, 40 years. But God can do some great things with those who have a surrendered heart to him. Yes. Amen. Our sister over there makes such a a wonderful point. It's not because of what we are or who we are, but because of who he is and what he has done. It's like that song, Liddy, what was that song? Who Am I? By um, Casting Crowns. It's a wonderful song. And it, it tells us, that it is because of the name of God and him being glorified that all things come into victory. The battle is the Lord. Be bold in the Lord. Let's look at 1747 and 48. 1747 and 48. Then all the assembly shall know the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord. And he will give you into our hands. How many believe that? How many believe that the battle is the Lord? You know, a lot of times, and there is places for stop smoking programs and addiction programs, But sometimes we need to have the faith to realize that the battle is the Lord's and he's already won that for that individual. We need to help them realize the power and that the battle has been won. You know, there are other places Joshua said that the battle belongs to the Lord. Anytime we try to do anything on our own, we can expect failure. But when we are coupled with Christ, when we link arms with him, when we link our hearts with him and he becomes one with us, we can have victory. 
victory over anything. And you know, for Adventists, I think the biggest victory that we need is over our spiritual pride. We have everything as Seventh-day Adventists. We have the additional light of the spirit of prophecy. And yet, um, we don't have the grace to deal with those who come into our midst that are not like us. And that we should allow the grace of God to consume us and to help present to them that no matter what battle they have, it already has been won by Christ. And and I, I praise the Lord that you had that experience. But when you come into the church, you don't always sit on the boards. <laughs> you see, it's, it's the boards in the church that are served by, most of the time, Adventists who've been Adventists for so many years. <laughs> and the challenge is, in, in, in all the churches that I've ever been in, the challenge is, is that... We want to have it our way, and we're not willing to surrender to the good of the whole body of Christ. And if we have Christ living in our lives, then it's easy to say, you know, and and we always use this as an example. I don't care what color the carpet is, as long as that we are in unity. I, I don't care what what kind of pew we have. Is as long as that we can come together and worship as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know, and just talking about church life a little bit, and I know this does not deal with prayer and praying like David and the battle. But I want you to be aware of a process that usually happens in the church. There is conflict from between one brother and another or from one sister and another, and they begin to stop talking. And that recon- a peacemaker class that's taking place, a very good class for Adventists, because what I've seen in the church is that they begin to stop talking. They begin to start s- sitting on opposite sides of the church. They begin to avoid each other. And then what ends up happening is they begin to not come regularly. And, and you look at our, our church population today. Most churches have on the books double of what they have attend. And we have not, as a body of believers, learned how to pull these individuals back in and reconcile them t- to the Lord. It says that we are ministers of reconciliation. And so he gives each of you not only the obligation or duty of being a minister of reconciliation, but he gives you the ability that you can win through the Holy Spirit and through connection with Christ individuals who have left the church. So that's the sidelight. Say that, say that again. That, that happens. Yeah, that, that is possible. 
That is possible. And, and there's a few of those. But when you're a pastor, you start following up on all these. And um, I have learned one very famous phrase, I'm sorry. <laughs> because a lot of people want to hear that the church as a whole, and, and I, I tell my elders, I, I, w- I try to encourage the elders of our church, when you go out and visit people, you are the church corporately. Now, you may have not hurt them, but they're going to want to unload why they don't come to church anymore. And you, with a faithful ear, just listen, and then you apologize and say, you know, we're sorry that that has happened to you, but we're hoping that the love of Christ can uh, bring healing to this. And so... And it's not only the job of the elders, but it's the job of the deacons, the deaconesses, and each and every individual in the church. And we should be very concerned about the lack of people in the church. But we, let's get back to the... <laughs> yes. Amen. Amen. And, and um, I made this comment, and I think it should be everybody's. We are conservative with our own personal growth, but we're liberal with the growth of others. That way, God is always calling us to a higher standard. But we allow God to call others to that higher standard at their rate and at God's timing. Giants. There are giants in our prayer life, giants that seem for, uh, impossible. And the first one is the giant of selfish prayer. And a lot of times, and as we look at James 4, 3, it says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on what? Lord, help me get this car. Lord, help me get this job. Lord, help me get win the lotto. Lord, help me. And we do want the Lord to help us for a lot of things. And it's not wrong to ask God. But, you know, as we begin to have that mind of Christ again, it changes. And we begin to start asking, Lord, please help brother so-and-so. Please help sister so-and-so. Please help my aunt who is dying of cancer. You know, our, our, our whole focus begins to change. And there is the need for the selfish prayer. Lord, help me to be more like you. That's a good thing to pray. Lord, forgive me for not being willing to walk with you. That's a good selfish prayer. Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Those are the prayers God wants to hear. But when it comes to the material things of this world, don't you think that he loves you enough that he knows what you're lacking you don't god knows your needs and so we need to realize that sometimes our selfishness and what we're praying for can be a giant that only god can help us overcome another giant the giant of unbelief how many have had that like like uh 
this young man, Mark 9.24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said in tears, Lord, I believe, but help my... You know, I think of evangelism programs and sitting on planning committees and thinking, Lord, are we going to be able to do this? Or if you've ever been in a small church and you only got like a handful of people who can really work and you say, Lord, how are we going to do this? And yet God's saying, you have me. I I will send workers. I will make things work for you. And I got to tell you, as much as you may want your pastor to be all believing, a lot of times there is unbelief in the pastor. Because sometimes we try to depend too much on what we know, where we've been, what we've experienced to help the whole church through. And what we need to really do is depend on God's experience and what God can do. The giant of idolatry. Now you're saying, Pastor, I'm not an idolater. How can you be an idolater? Spending, that's not, I I had to take that away. (laughs) You see, my studies are on my my computer. (laughs) I don't spend too much time. Oh, playing games, okay. (laughs) Okay, too much time on your computer in... Um, unproductive. And if, if those who didn't hear what Brother Steve had to say, sometimes we trust more in our retirement than God's retirement. Sometimes we trust more in our crops to provide the food than God providing the food. Now, he provides through that. What are some other uh, idols that we can have in our life? Oh, okay, we can do that. That it can be an idol. That little sin, whatever that little sin may be. Any other idols that we can have? Yes. The house? You, you and me both. My house has to be immaculate, and I spend some time on it. But, um, you know, our house is our yards, and, you know, even though that God has given us our occupations, a lot of times our desire to climb up the corporate ladder or be very successful in our job can be an idol also. Behind you.
Yeah. I is the center of sin. Selfishness is the center of idolatry. As you've mentioned, any idolatry, as we boil it down to the very basic, we want to achieve in our jobs because we either want more money or we want more fame or prestige. We want a better house because of either comfort or we want to keep up with the Joneses. But one of the things is we can have any kind of idol can be a giant in our prayer life. We have to continue to place God first in everything we do. Did I see another hand back there? No. Another giant we come to is the giant of broken relationships. Says then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was, a nak- I was naked and I hid myself. Did I miss the slide? Oh, okay, thank you. I must have double-clicked. The giant of unforgiveness. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Tell me what you think about that passage. And then I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> Forgive 70 times 7. Any other thoughts? Yes. For those who may not have heard over here, over here, over here, what she said is forgiveness is like a cancer. It begins very small and undetected. And then it begins to fester and grow and grow and grow until it consumes your life. And there, I saw your hand up first, and then we'll come over here. Amen. So everybody, you need to forgive at least once. <laughs> Forgiveness is a gift of God. So, so what we're trying to do is as we are connected with God, he allows forgiveness to overwhelm our souls so that we can forgive others. I, I want to also see what you think about this last phrase of the sentence, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Some people believe, and, and I'm going to give you my understanding of the scriptures on this. God has already forgiven everyone. And it's not about a condition, if I don't forgive you, he's not going to forgive me. Because he's already forgiven me at the cross of Calvary. But what happens is when we do not allow forgiveness to come into our hearts, we can't accept his forgiveness. That's the concept here. It's not that the Father doesn't forgive us. It's that we can't accept the forgiveness at the cross. 
because our heart has become so hardened because we haven't forgiven another. And it's interesting because shame builds up, and shame is one of the tools of the devil, and it is part of the unforgiving process. So, yes, one more, Lydia. Not, uh, okay, marriage seminars. Okay, my wife and I, this is a good principle to have. When we do marriage seminars, my wife and I, we, we have this little thing. Whoever is in the right, let him or her begin the first steps of reconciliation. So we both think that we're in the right, so we're both there to say, I'm sorry. Okay. No, 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 really, I'm sorry, because I know I'm in the right. <laughs> but, you know, the wonderful thing is it really works, because, you know, when it comes down to it, it's not really who's in the right, but that you're willing to go to one another and ask forgiveness. So... Thank you, Lydia. Yes. <laughs> Holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The giant of broken relationship. And we saw this and that goes along with forgiveness. Our relation, when I do marital counseling, I, I try to convey to the couple, before this relationship breaks down, this has already begun to break down. It is a triune. Every marriage, every relationship that we have is a triune experience. If this relationship's not good, this relationship's not good. I don't care how righteous you are in your church. If you have something against your brother, you're not right with God. Because there is animosity in your heart. And so when I start seeing that I'm having a problem with my brother or sister, the first thing I do is I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, reveal to me what my problem is. Not what their problem is, but what my problem is. And so we have to have these restored relationships, not only between God and ourselves, but between each of us to have a powerful prayer life. Now, I talked about five giants. Now I'm going to talk about five stones. How much time we've got left? Nine minutes. Okay. This is going to go quick. For those who know the story, David, why did David pick up five stones? Oh, it's interesting. If you look in Second Samuel chapter 21, verses 21 through 22, you will see that it states there that there were four other giants that were slain by David and his servants. Now, it does not say that they were slain with a stone, 
but it has been assumed by some commentators that these four others were his brother, uh, was the brothers of Goliath. And so that uh, when David picked up the four stones, he was ready to slay every giant that the Philistines were going to bring before him. And he was confident that it would only take one stone to kill Goliath. Because, again, the battle belongs to the... Amen. And so now what I've done is I've taken the application of the five stones and put it to prayer. And what five stones will make a strong prayer life? The first one is uh, the praise and thanksgiving. He appointed certain Levites, this is speaking about David, to lead out in worship before the ark of the Lord, praying for the people, giving thanks to the Lord, and praising him for what he has done for Israel. This was very important. Read through the prayers of David. They all involve praise and thanksgiving. I can't tell you how important it is to have praise and thanksgiving within your prayers and to do it at the very onset as you pray. As you will find out tomorrow as we talk about the sanctuary, when you enter into the gates of the sanctuary, it says, enter into his gates with? And praise. And into his courts with praise. So, you know, our prayer life needs to be that of thanksgiving and praise. Stone number two, stone of dependence and repentance. Look at the prayer of Isaiah 50, Isaiah, Psalm 51. Famous song. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your what? What is he doing here? Is he giving praise and thanksgiving? And in the time he's giving praise and thanksgiving, he's reassuring himself that God will have a forgiving heart toward him. Your loving kindness, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my sins, wash away my guilt completely, and make me clean again. You know, I I love Psalm 51, and I love the verse where it says, because a lot of times we think whether we're cheating on our income tax or whatever we're doing, that it's not hurting anybody. But David says, my sin is not against anyone else. It's against you, O God. Whatever hidden sin that you think you have, God knows it. And, And it's this hidden sin that also keeps us separated from him. You have hid iniquity in your heart, and it has caused the separation between us. But the stone of dependence and repentance, and this was what made David a man after God's own heart. He was willing to repent and to be dependent. And you notice what society does today? We teach everyone that it's important to be independent. But God says, I want you to be dependent. I want you to depend on me for everything in your life. The stone of dependence, and I gave some other verses here. Deuteronomy 124 was a story that God told Moses that tell them not to go to war because if they go to war, I'm not going to be with them and they're going to lose. Whenever we try to go to battle for ourselves, we will lose. John 5.19 shows the example of Christ. Christ says he does nothing except the Father show him and guide him. 
And then also, John 15, 5, it says that we can do nothing without Christ. So there are a few other scriptures for dependence and repentance as a stone for having a victorious prayer life. Stone of remembering God's promises. O Lord, you are God of compassion. You are gracious and kind and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's a spirit of prophecy quote says, the greatest fear that we have for the future is that we forget how God has taught us and led us in the past. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you read through there, you'll see the whole Exodus experience being remembered. God tells us to remember the Sabbath day. As we continue to remember the accounts of God in our life, it gives us faith in His power to bring victory. And this is why if you do not have a prayer journal, it is so important to begin one. You can, you can do prayer journals on computers. You can do prayer journals on notebooks, but a prayer journal is one of the strongest tools that you have to help remembering how God has led you, has answered your prayer, and it will increase your faith. The stone of remembering God's promise, another one, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. You know, this is the wonderful thing as we meditate on it. What do we want to do? Tell someone else about it. That's why we talk about it is because we continue to bring it to our memory and to see how, and it restores the joy in us. The stone of faith. Depart from, depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. David had the faith that as he prayed, these workers would, these workers of iniquity would be banished, that Goliath would fall. Now, as someone mentioned about unforgiveness being a gift of God, so is faith. To each of us is given a measure of faith. A measure, or, or the measure. The measure of faith. But it's different for each individual. And it's, then it says in, the, in Romans, faith comes by what? And hearing the word of God. The stone of faith, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing, of the, sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, all these prayers of David continue to show that as we trust in him, it changes our disposition. We now become glad Adventists. We now become individuals who can rejoice in God. And an, another one, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. And then the stone of humility. Um, that's the fifth. It's understanding that we don't fight the battle. And we have to humble ourselves because it's hard sometimes for us to realize that we have to depend on someone else.
And so humility is such an important part in church, too. And such an important part of a pastor's life. Because those who are great speakers, I can't imagine how much Satan attacks them on how great a speaker they are and how they've converted thousands. And um, we have to constantly remind ourselves that the battle belongs to the Lord. The souls who are one for him belong to the Lord. And they were won by the Lord. And God, everything that is around us is done by the Lord. Yes. This comes, and this is my closing remark. It's actually from Signs of the Times, 1886. David's heart was not in the least intimidated. I'm going to look at the big screen. David's heart was not in the least intimidated, for he knew in whom he trusted. Thou comest to me, he said, with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defiled, this day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all the assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. I hope and pray that you realize that your, your prayers of victory are based in praying like David and the praise and the thanksgiving and realizing that the battle has been won. He just calls for us to come alongside. Shall we bow our heads as we pray? Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your loving kindness. Father, we praise you for the opportunity to be here in this beautiful place to learn more of you, to learn to commune with you, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we just pray that you will go before us this day, that you will provide divine appointments, that we may share the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we may share your love with someone who is hurting or who is alone. And Father, I pray that you will continue to be with each individual here as they Hear the speakers that speak throughout the day. May their hearts be turned toward heaven. And may you anoint the lips of those who speak, that they will give the undefiled gospel and truth of your word. Father, we thank you for hearing this prayer, and we just pray that you will go with each one of us this day, that people will see that we have been with Jesus. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.